Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 316 of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Good to have you. So um, what I want to talk about a little bit here is um, the election season that we are heading into. As I'm recording this, uh, the Iowa primary has been held and the New Hampshire primary has been held and everything is galloping towards South Carolina which is uh, Nikki Haley's home state, and it is a place where she is likely to get uh, shellacked by Trump. Now, everybody seems to be uh, wondering why is Nikki Haley still in the race? What is she doing? She got trounced in Iowa, and where she was supposedly strong, New Hampshire, she got trounced there, and she was only strong because independents and Democrats could cross over in in the primary to vote for her, and you say, well, why don't why don't we? Um, why doesn't she just throw in the towel? Well, there are all kinds of reasons um, why she might not throw in the towel. One of them is that never Trumpers. There's a never Trumper contingent that is simply deranged, that is going to go down with the ship. You know, that they're just they're they're true believers. They're going to. Go, they're going to fight to the last ditch. There's that. There's another element where there is a whole universe of what you might call political grifters who who make their living off of campaign money. And there is no campaign money where there is no campaign. If the campaign is gets buttoned up, then, okay, then all the consultants, all the ad people, everybody gets... Uh, laid off. And so it is in somebody's interest to keep the thing going as long as you can. Uh, there are other things to keep in mind, and that is politics, the political game, elections are ordinarily have a pretty seamy side. But I think in our day, the last few rounds of our elections have gotten extraordinarily so. And I think everybody is braced for dirty deeds, done dirt cheap, as the old song puts it, capital D, capital D, dirty deeds. Um, and that includes replacing Biden at the last minute, the Democrats are replacing Biden. It includes, you say, well, with whom? Uh, someone like Michelle Obama, someone like that. But don't put it past them to just stay with Biden. They've gotten away they've gotten away with us having a sock puppet for 3 years as our president. He do, he doesn't have a grip. He's clearly manifestly not capable of uh holding this office. And yet he's stage managed and moved around and that they've been able to do that. So why can't they just walk him through another campaign that way? I suspect that they won't replace him. I, I suspect they're going to go for broke. Now, there are some people on the left among the Democrats who are true believers, and they are whizzed up about Trump because they're just whizzed up about Trump. But I wouldn't put it past some of the uh, elites at the top of the Democratic Party, you know, our lizard overlords. <laughs> um, I wouldn't put it past them to want Trump to win so that they can foment the civil unrest that that would usher in. And it, that's something it certainly would do. 
So the thing that we have to be aware of in this election season is that it is not an ordinary election season. You may have been getting up and driving to the polls ever since you could vote, and you may have been doing that for decades. And you might think that you're doing that same, very same thing this coming November, but you are not doing the very same thing. Now, somebody's going to ask, I might, well, might as well answer the question, are you going to vote for Trump? Well, the answer is a qualified yes. Well, the yes part is not qualified. If the election in November comes down to Trump and Biden or Trump and any other Menshevik, then yes, I'm going to vote for Trump. But the qualification would be in the adverb, what, what I'm thinking when I do it. All, all faithful Christians are praying for a Josiah to be raised up. And it looks like what is happening is we're getting a Jehu. We, we would love a Josiah, but we're getting a Jehu. And I think that the exhortation ought to be to evangelical believers, to people who care about these things. I think the exhortation to us ought to be something like, take the Jehu. But taking the Jehu, don't kid yourself. Don't call him a Josiah. Don't call him a Messiah. Don't call him anything blasphemous. Right? Always will be God. So as we continue on through Podcast 116, we continue to wend our way through this lexicon of sin, our tour being called the Great Hamartiology Tour. The exhibit before us now is a hapox. That word, hapox, means that we're talking about a, a word that is used only one time. And that word is kapaleo, kapaleo, which means corrupt. And here's the use of the word. Paul is talking about his ministry, and he contrasts it with what a lot of people do. All right? He contrasts it with what a lot of people do. This is from 2 Corinthians 2.17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. So, we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. There's our word, which corrupt the word of God. They are doctoring the word of God. They're introducing foreign elements. They're taking stuff out and they're putting stuff in. They are adulterating the word of God. So, preaching the word of God with pure and unadulterated motives, is apparently something that is comparatively rare. Okay, Notice that how Paul begins this. But we are not as many. What's he saying? He's saying many preachers corrupt the Word of God. Many ministers corrupt the Word of God. Many leaders corrupt the Word of God. Not doing that is comparatively rare. Contextually, he has just finished talking about how preachers are the aroma of death to some and the aroma of life to others. So when a preacher of the true gospel comes into a town, uh, into a village, into a place where that is filled with non-believers, filled with pagans, and he begins preaching the gospel of life, what that gospel is going to do is divide the population clean in two. Some are going to respond to his preaching they're going to be attracted to it because it's going to seem like them as the aroma of life. Others are going to recoil. Others are going to react away, and they're going to react away because it smells to them like the aroma of death. So, this being the case with people reacting strongly, 
it is easy to start trimming or adulterating the message so as to avoid the strong negative reaction you're certainly going to get from those for whom a straight preaching of the gospel, a straight preaching of the word, is the stench of death. Nobody likes the stench of death, and nobody likes the people who cause that stench to pass just beneath your nose. And that being the case, it is easy for preachers to start trying to make their ointment into some kind of universal winsome perfume. If only I could take this message and come up with some alchemist's version of this gospel, where I monkey with the, the ingredients and make this smell good to everybody. But those who want the gospel to be a universal winsome perfume want the gospel to be something other than what it is. And to do this, to even attempt it, is to corrupt the message, which is our sin for this week. Corrupting the message, um, either diluting the word or adulterating the word or mixing it, adding it, cobbling it to something else. All of that is just bad news. God don't never change. He's God. All right, continuing on with the podcast, episode 316. My book review is, uh, uh, this time, is a, uh, a book by Philip Kaiser, uh, who's a pastor in Omaha. And he wrote a little book that was really wonderful. The book is called Sunday as First Day Sabbath. Sunday as First Day Sabbath. Now, some of the things that he wrote in there were things I'd read before, things I've read elsewhere. Some of the um, things that the early fathers said about Sunday worship. If you have a Seventh-day Adventist friend, you may have heard that they say Constantine is the one who established Sunday worship, but he has a, a number of quotes from early fathers going back very early that shows that the early Christians met on the first day of the week and that they did so for very, very clear biblical reasons. Those biblical reasons being the center of the, the, that biblical reasoning being the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. Now, so there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of good argumentation, a lot of good citations, and the book is really worthwhile. It's worth getting for that. But the the centerpiece of the book, the thing that uh, was something I just found wonderful, and I'd never I'd never encountered it before, and I'm kind of astonished. It's sort of right there on the surface, at least in the well, it's on the surface in the Greek, but I'm sort of astounded. I've never seen this before or heard anybody talk about it before or uh, and here it is i'll take two examples one from first corinthians 16 and the other from all four gospels taken as a a unit because they all say basically the same thing in first corinthians 16 uh, paul is wanting the corinthians to do the same thing that he instructed the galatian churches to do which was to when they gather together to set apart a love offering for the saints in Jerusalem. And Paul says that he wants them to do this because he doesn't want a lot of bustling about trying to gather up the offering after he gets there. He would like the offering already gathered and ready to go. So he asks them all to uh, set aside a certain amount of money on the first day of the week. Okay? On the first day of the week. Now, that's the first day of the week is Sunday. And just even in the uh, in the regular rendering, 
if you render that as the first day of the week, it's very clear that it's at church, and it's very clear that the Christians who are doing this are gathering up the offering on that first day of the week. If Paul said, no, I want everybody to set aside a certain amount of money at home, but then there's, it's confusing. If they set aside the money at home, then that doesn't address the problem uh, that Paul wants to avoid, which is the rushing around trying to gather up the offering if everybody left their wallet at home. And secondly, why would someone have to wait until Sunday to set aside the money if they're setting it aside at home? That doesn't make sense. But that's not the um, fact that I'm headed toward. What is the Greek phrase underneath first day of the week? When Paul says, on the first day of the week, this is what I want you to do. Well, the phrase there, Greek phrase, is meon sabatu. Meon sabatu. And a strict literal rendering would be on the first day Sabbath. On the first day Sabbath. Now, in, in Greek, an adjective has to modify the, um, the noun that it's with in gender, number, and case. And in this case, meon doesn't match sabatu, which means there has to be an implied uh, noun that it's modifying, which is why we say first day Sabbath. And we do the same thing in English. If I said the good die young, good is an adjective, and there is no noun. But everybody understands it's the good people, or the good men die young. It's the same here. Meon, first day, sabatu, Sabbath. The first day of the week is called a Sabbath by the Apostle Paul. Now, but it's stronger than that. If you go to the Gospels, oh, it's also worth mentioning that Greek has a perfectly ordinary word for week. So, calling the week by the Sabbath or the first day of the week as a Sabbath, that'd be an unusual construction. It's far more likely, far more likely that he's talking about the first day of the week as a Sabbath. Well, in all four Gospels, the ordinary word for week is not used when it's talking about the people going out to the tomb on the first resurrection morning, on, on Sunday morning. There, four times, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, it's meon sabatu. When the Sabbath, and they'll say, when the Sabbath was over, and that's referring to the Jewish Sabbath, when the Sabbath was over, very early on the meon sabatu, very early on the first day Sabbath, the women uh, went out to the tomb. And this, this is something that's, um, that happens in all four Gospels, and it's very clear that the, um, that the apostles are pointing to uh, the resurrection of Christ as the foundation of Sabbath rejoicing. 